Today's show has far too much substance in it. (laughs) You're going to say, goodness gracious, quit it with the substance. I'm ODing on substance. Um, That's what's going to happen. So I got about 412 stories about America's dad, Bernie Sanders. Uh, We'll get to those. I'm going to lead with all of them because Bernie is just that special. Um, We also have... A story about a U.S. congressman who committed war crimes and is, like, offended that you might think there should be justice for those war crimes. So that's a really important story. It should be a much bigger story than it is. Joe Biden is also tanking in the polls, and we're going to have a little conversation about why that is. It's a little bit of an I told you so segment. Um... And then later on, if you can't hear all these papers ruffling, we have a a critical analysis of the Republican tax law. That is awesome because it shows you how the end result was what we said it was going to be, which is just redistribution to the rich. Um, And the idea that there's economic benefits to it is actually untrue and All the bragging that the Republicans are doing um, highlights how they're all propagandists and uh, they're misstating the reality. So we have all that and much, much more. I want to wish a very happy birthday real quick to Draven. He's turning 15 years old, getting his permit. That's pretty sweet. Already an adult. Time flies. Draven, of course, is Lilith's son, one of Lilith's sons. Uh, So very happy birthday to you, Draven. Enjoy uh, 
the art of driving now. <laughs> oh, man. I remember those days. I think I've parallel parked once in my entire life, and that parallel parking was for the driver's test. And then outside of that, I've never parallel parked. So um, very happy birthday, Draven. And uh, let me know how you feel about parallel parking when you have to do it. <laughs> All right, let's jump into it. Um, Bernie Sanders talks at Move On. Uh, let me pull up that clip for everybody. And I'll give you a little introing tin, and we're off. So Bernie Sanders spoke at MoveOn.org, and uh, the idea behind the speech is to tell everybody one big idea that you have. And, uh, you know, Bernie could have went in a number of directions for this speech. There are a lot of big ideas that he has, relatively speaking, for the U.S. political system. Um, in reality, he's just kind of like a mild social Democrat. But in Washington, D.C., they try to paint you as like just an insane, super far lefty who has these ideas that are unproven, even though quite literally all of his ideas are proven because they're just following the rest of the developed world. Uh, but I digress from that. It's interesting to see what topic he picked. Take a look. All of you know there are many enormously important issues, including the need for Medicare for all, for giving students debt and making public colleges and universities tuition free, raising the minimum wage, criminal justice reform, immigration reform, and addressing the global crisis of climate change, among other issues. But there is one issue out there that does not get the attention that it deserves, a very big idea, and that is the need to stop endless wars and to bring, to bring the world together to find diplomatic solutions to international conflict. Today, we are preparing to send soldiers to Afghanistan who were not even born on September 11, 2001. We have spent $5 trillion on the wars that have taken place since, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen, a horrific war. And now we have some of the same people that got us into the war in Iraq trying to start a military conflict with Iran. We have got to stop endless wars. We have got to cut military spending. Now, recently, recently I have been attacked because of my opposition to unnecessary wars. I make no apologies as a young man proposing the war in Vietnam. I make no apologies as a congressman for doing everything that I could to prevent the disastrous war in Iraq. And I am proud right now to have led the effort to get the United States out of an unauthorized, unconstitutional war in Yemen. And let me be absolutely clear, with the Trump administration proposing to send 10,000 troops to confront Iran, I will do everything in my power to stop a war with Iran. 
It is time to bring our troops home from Afghanistan and Iraq. It is time for Congress to assert its constitutional prerogative and repeal the 2001 and 2002 authorizations that have been used as a blank check to send U.S. troops into harm's way. But it is not enough to just end military interventions. It is time to end the entire policy of endless wars. Using war and militarism as the first and only foreign policy tool has undermined the United States' moral authority, caused allies to question our ability to lead, drained our treasury, and corroded our own democracy. When we end endless wars, we can finally begin to ask ourselves, how do we move toward a global community in which people have decent jobs, adequate food, clean water, education, health care, and the housing that they need? That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, uh, when you ask Bernie, one of the things he says is, okay, here's a screw-up we had in 2016, we didn't focus enough on the issue of foreign policy, and we should have focused more on foreign policy. And he almost seemed like a little hesitant to argue with Hillary Clinton on her grounds and on her terms, because remember, Hillary was Secretary of State, so the media just kept like repeatedly fawning over her prowess on foreign policy issues. But of course, what they don't tell you is that she has a lot of experience because she got every major decision wrong. She pushed for regime change in Libya. Um, she obviously voted for the Iraq war. She's flat out a hawk. She's a hawk. And even though she's been in that game for a long time, that doesn't mean she's correct. That's not a substitute for accuracy. So um, I think that Perhaps he was a little bit squeamish when he shouldn't have been, and he could have attacked her on that issue, and he could have made it a bigger issue. And it appears like he definitely learned his lesson from 2016. And he's like, yeah, no, forget it. I'm going to go all out on the non-interventionism in this election, and I think that's going to help, and I think that's going to be a good thing. And remember, this was a speech where you're supposed to talk about one big idea. He chose this over all other issues. That's huge, man. And it's, it's also intelligent because you, you can link two really important issues together in one fell swoop. And that, of course, is, hey, if we stop doing all these stupid, offensive regime change wars, well, then what we could do is take that money and invest here at home and do, for example, a giant infrastructure deal where we can move down the path of renewable and green technology, and we could do a Green New Deal where we create millions of jobs um, and we rebuild our infrastructure and everybody wins. Everybody wins because we change our infrastructure from a grade of D+, which is what it currently is. Let's make that an A. Let's do a giant investment here. There's a jobs program attached where you get millions of uh, good-paying jobs. And also, we now uh, become moral again and we're not doing offensive wars anymore. This is wonderful. It's great. And I think, um, 
I think it resonates. I, I think that one of the reasons why Trump won, uh, there are many reasons why he won, and we don't need to go into all the factors right now, but he did at least half the time make non-interventionist arguments. And the peace candidate or the perceived peace candidate historically does well. So, and remember, going back, like, for example, even though Obama wasn't against the Afghanistan war, he was against the Iraq war. And so he was able to use that argument against John McCain in 2008. And, you know, that's a, that's a potent argument. That's a powerful argument. He wasn't non-interventionist enough when he ran, but he was enough to get elected. Like it was, it, it is an argument that resonates. It's hard to make the case of let's go bomb more places. Let's go invade more places. It's another thing if you just don't touch the issue at all and you're like hands off, but you just kind of let the wars continue. That It's possible to get by doing that argument when you campaign by not saying anything, basically. But certainly, if you're forced to make an argument, if you make the argument of let's stop bombing places and invading places, that's going to resonate more. People forget that even George W. Bush, when he ran um, and... He beat Al Gore, even though Al Gore won the popular vote. Um, he argued he was a compassionate conservative, and he said, we're not going to do nation building. And then, of course, the exact opposite happened. He was a neoconservative, and he did endless wars. Um, but point is, it's politically dumb to think like, oh, if I make the case for hawkishness, it's going to help me. And... Um, now, Bernie seems to get that lesson. He never made the case for hawkishness. He was always um, at least mildly non-interventionist. But now he's like putting it front and center. And he's saying, no, I'm going to plant a flag here. And also, you got to give props to Tulsi Gabbard because Tulsi Gabbard, you know, I don't know exactly what went on in Bernie's head. I don't know what confluence of factors led him to make this decision to put this issue front and center. But, uh, you know, Tulsi's been out there for, for the longest time since she launched her campaign, and that is, like, her main issue. That's not saying she doesn't care about the other issues. She does. But it's clear that when you prioritize, this is number one to her, for sure. And she's gone out, and she's been smeared relentlessly for it. Now, I don't know if Bernie sees the Tulsi arguments and goes, yeah, you know, I'm going to – okay, she moved me a little bit in the direction of, you know, making the arguments – I don't know if that's what happened, but either way, I support where they are now. And it's also wonderful that now you have two really strong non-interventionist voices. And make the point, make the point, make them defend their shitty beliefs. Could you imagine Bernie Sanders on stage with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders calling him out on arming Saudi Arabia repeatedly as they committed genocide in Yemen? Can you imagine Bernie calling out Trump to his face? on his escalation with Iran, I mean, it would be, there is no response. He wouldn't have a response. He'd say, oh, you're crazy. You're crazy, Bernie. You're crazy by always focusing on policy substance and being correct. I have to tell you, believe me. So um, it's good news. There's nothing else to say about this other than uh, this is smart politics. This is smart policy. And this is what people love about Bernie Sanders. And I think this is where his heart of hearts is as well. You know, I don't think it's just a strategic thing. I think he actually is in favor of stopping the endless wars. 
So to vocalize that more than he did last time, because that was a main criticism from the left of him last time. There are people on the left who were saying, why don't you, like, I don't understand. You're not, you're, you hammer away on the domestic front. You hammer away on Medicare for all and corruption and, and free college and a living wage, but there's no, you're not hammering away enough on foreign policy. It's just more tepid. Well, now he's saying, nope, course correction, bitch. Here we are. And I'm planting that flag, and I'm saying we're going to stop the endless wars. And, oh, you disagree? By all means, try to make your case. And when they try to make the case, it'll be like this. Go ahead. Try. <laughs> Let's see if Joe Biden can counter this effectively. There's no way he can counter it. There's nothing he could say in response to this that's going to go over better with the public. So um, great stuff from Bernie here. I'd like to see more of this moving forward. And um, the Overton window shifting, it might be slowly. But I don't even know if it's that slowly. The Overton window is definitely shifting. Medicare for All is now a litmus test for Democratic candidates. And we're going to get to a point where ending all the offensive regime change wars is a litmus test as well. Now, let's go to our buddy Jank, spoke to Bernie, and y'all are going to like this. So Jank Uger of TYT asked Bernie Sanders how he would go about getting Medicare for All passed. So it's one thing to say, yes, I'm in favor of it. Nobody doubts whether or not Bernie Sanders is in favor of Medicare for All. He obviously is. But then the question is, okay, well... How do we get from point A to point B? Because it's not enough to just be for it. You have to know how to make it as likely as possible that we actually get it implemented. Let's see his answer here, and then we'll break it down. Let's say you're uh, President Sanders. You've got uh, inaugurated, and, and you're in office, and you push for Medicare for All. You've said you're going to. And I think one of your strengths uh, is that people believe you when you say you're going to push for Medicare for all. But let's say Democratic senators, put aside Republicans for now, Joe Manchin, Michael Bennett, whoever they might be, say no. What do you do? Well, look, what I have said a million times is that real change does not emanate from Washington, D.C., or in fact from the president. It emanates from the people. And the role that I will be playing as president of the United States is not just sitting in the Oval Office. I will go to West Virginia, which is one of the poorest, most desperate states in this country, and I will rally the people of West Virginia, and I will go all over this country to demand that members of Congress and members of the Senate do what needs to be done, and that is to pass a Medicare for All single-payer program and to have the guts to take on the power of the drug companies who are ripping us off every day and the insurance companies. So the strategy of this president of a President Bernie Sanders, which may be unique in American history, is to get out of the Oval Office and go to the people and make it clear that we cannot tolerate a government which is owned and controlled by big money interest, and that the only way we make real change is when millions of people stand up and fight back. That's the president that I would be. So if uh, one of those senators or congresspeople is taking money from pharmaceutical companies, health insurance companies, and standing in the way of getting health care coverage for every American, 
You would pressure them and you would point out that systematic more corruption? More than pressure them. They would see me in their home states. Look, we are the only country, major country, that doesn't guarantee health care to all. We're spending twice as much per capita on health care. It's got to change. 30,000 people a year die because they don't go to the doctor when they should. So if your question is, will I go to West Virginia? Will I go to Colorado? Will I go to any other state and rally? The people of those states put pressure on the United States Senate. Yeah, I will. Oh, my God, he gets it. He gets it. He's not just saying, yeah, philosophically, theoretically, in principle, I agree, it's Medicare for all. He's saying, yeah, I believe in it, and I believe in it so much, I will quite literally go do rallies in the states of Democrats who are standing in the way and who are not getting on board. I will go to West Virginia. I will rally in West Virginia. And I will tell the people, we are fighting for a Medicare for all system, and your Democratic senator is not in favor of it. How about you make them be in favor of it? That's it. He gets it. This is the way to make them do the bidding of the people, to make them actually do their job of representing the people. This is the way. There's another slight piece of the equation, which he didn't say here, but I think he probably knows it, which is it's carrots and sticks. You can also help out the people who say, you know what, I'm going to vote yes. I'm going to vote for Medicare for all. And listen, man, this is, this is like the real nitty-gritty of politics. How do you get stuff done? And it, sometimes you've got to be kind of Machiavellian in the process of doing it. So if that means even somebody who otherwise you, you and I would hate, guys, if the trade-off is from Bernie Sanders, hey, listen, Joe Manchin, I was just elected president. I have whatever the approval rating might be at the time, 60%, usually new presidents, it's through the roof, their approval rating. So my approval rating is high. I was just elected president. Here's number, the number one thing on my agenda, Medicare for all. I'm going to make this clear. If you vote for it, you will have my support, you will have my backing, and I will campaign for your reelection with you. Forget all the other, okay, you cast a bunch of horrible votes in your career, Wall Street deregulation, the list goes on and on. If you do the right thing on Medicare for All, you have my support. If you don't do the right thing, kiss your political career goodbye. My approval rating is what, 60%? What's yours? 38, 35? You really want to play this game? Let's play this game. It'll be me versus you. I will actively support a primary opponent against you if you vote against Medicare for All. But if you do the right thing, there are perks. There are benefits. Now, that's you're not supposed to say that. You're not allowed to say that. But this is the way the real world works, is that they're going to respond to pressure. But it's not just, you don't just get them through, here's the negative pressure I'm putting on you. You have to offer them also. But if you do the right thing, then there are positives to it. Now, again, you're not allowed to say that out loud, but this is the way politics actually functions. So make their life a living hell if they vote no. If they vote yes, make their life wonderful. And this is the only way to get it done because I got news for everybody. There is no, like the idea that in Washington, D.C., there are all well-meaning people who just have 
philosophical differences and policy substance differences, you'd have to be so naive to believe that that cesspool of rank corruption is just, but the honorable gentleman disagrees with me from West Virginia. No, it's not like that. They don't have like, the number of actual ideologues are few and far between. It's mostly people who are just kind of going with the winds and, and they're massively Im- influenced by the Wall Street money, by the big pharma money, by for-profit health insurance company money. And there's group think that goes on. And, oh, uh, you know, how would we pay for it if we did Medicare for all? And they just kind of adopt the lazy-ass talking point arguments that, have been, that oversaturate D.C. So given that that's the case, Yes, the only way to actually get this stuff implemented is not through just rational argumentation. That's what works on the public. The public goes, oh, okay, I see, Medicare for all makes sense. You made the point, it's logical, yada, yada. But you have to do it through pressure. You have to do it through, there are consequences if you're not in favor of it, there are benefits if you are in favor of it, so we're going to get this done. We're going to get this through, whether or not you like it. And one of the most important aspects of that is what he just laid out right there, which is, no, I will make your own state despise you and hate you and view you as what you are, a corrupt sellout goon if you don't do the right thing. Now, c- compare this to, not to pick only on Elizabeth Warren, because she's certainly in the top tier of Democratic candidates, but um, compare the answer Bernie just gave to Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren wouldn't even say in an interview with Jen Uger of TYT about a year ago, she wouldn't even call out Jill Manchin. Jank threw a softball right down the center of the plate, and she's like, I love Joe Manchin. Oh, God damn it. Oh, God damn it. So you think she's going to apply that pressure that's absolutely necessary? No. She's a wonk, and she's right, really good on tax policy and Wall Street policy. That's her wheelhouse. But does she know how to leverage the power of the people and play politics to actually get the end uh, goal implemented? No. Not even close. Bernie's indicating here that he does know. So... Um, that's so important. The answer he gave here is so important. And I need everybody to understand just how important that is. Because even if you're right on all the policy issues, but you're Obama-esque in your approach, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get anything implemented. So what that means is Obama had a, a, a true belief in compromise and negotiation. And, oh, my God, I could just get them to agree with me if I talk to them long enough. No. So if you have that philosophy, it ain't going to go anywhere. Bernie's philosophy of, I'm going to make this tangible, bitch. That's the only thing that's going to work. So Bernie 2020, baby. Bernie 2020. Okay. Next. So Bernie Sanders has been campaigning all around the country, really working hard, outworking all the other candidates. And that's not to say that the other candidates aren't working hard. Many of them are. Well, Joe Biden isn't, but that's on purpose. Um, And it's actually smart strategy on his part because nobody likes him when they hear him talk more and more and more. But um, Bernie is just on on another level. The dude is, you know, and I think he probably likes it. it. It seems to me like he feeds off this stuff. He feeds off going to all these uh, different states and doing rallies and uh, focusing on the issues. 
Well, another, he gave another wonderful speech at the California Democratic Party conference, and you'll notice the awesome theme here that he keeps harping away on. Check it out. We have got to make it clear that when the future of the planet is at stake, there is no middle ground. We will take on the fossil fuel industry and transform our energy system. We have got to make it clear that when this country drifts toward oligarchy, there is no middle ground. Large, profitable corporations like Amazon will pay their fair share of taxes. When it comes to health care, there is no middle ground. Health care is a human right, not a privilege. And we will guarantee health care to all of our people through a Medicare for all single-payer systems. When it comes to abortion, there is no middle ground. A woman has the right to control her own life, not the government. When it comes to prescription drugs, no middle ground. We're going to take on the pharmaceutical industry, cut prescription drug prices in half. And when it comes to mass shootings and the fact that 40,000 people were killed last year with guns, no middle ground, we will take on the NRA. And when it comes to criminal justice reform and immigration reform, no middle ground, we will take on the prison industrial complex. We will take on racism at the border. And when it comes to foreign policy, no middle ground. We will finally put an end to a bloated middle military budget and end endless wars. That's not even the whole segment. He kept coming back to it. No middle ground. There's no middle ground on this. There's no middle ground on this. There's no middle ground on this. And he kept ringing off issues. Now, I, I even have some slight disagreements with some of those issues where he says, there's no middle ground on this. But that's irrelevant. The main point here is that's a winning strategy. Because what you're doing is you're drawing a line in the sand. And you're saying, no, no, this is a new era. And in this new era, we actually have people on the left that believe in stuff. And they're going to fight for stuff. And they're not going to compromise away on something as crucial as climate change. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's the middle ground? The middle ground is, uh, you know, we don't do enough and we still end up going extinct down the road. And we end up destroying coastal cities because sea levels rise. And we end up having um, another uh, refugee crisis because 
uh, people have to flee certain areas, and we end up um, having wars over water, which is one of the things that's predicted from scientists as a result of the impact of climate change. We have people emptying out of the Middle East because it becomes too hot for human beings to live. So there are no, yeah, like on the issue of healthcare, for example, what do you mean? Middle ground, what does that mean? What do you mean a middle ground? Any middle ground effectively would mean we're still going to have some people who are not covered, don't have insurance. And therefore, as a result of that, there will be people who still die because they don't get health care. Anywhere from 30 to 45,000 a year are already like that in the U.S. Any kind of milquetoast, neoliberal, Obamacare-ish approach, that's not, that's not a middle ground. You're just wrong. You're just wrong, and your policies, quite literally, are deadly. What do you mean a middle ground? And listen, he's drawing a stark contrast between himself and pretty much all the other candidates, almost all the other candidates, certainly the Joe Bidens. And he's like, you know, he's viewed as like the perfect example of the opposite ideology, the perfect example of the corporatist wing of the Democratic Party. And this is him drawing a line in the sand and saying, okay, let's have this debate. Let's have this discussion. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to shy away. I'm not going to fight this on your terms. I'm going to tell you what the reality is. There is no middle ground on this, 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 and this. Please, by all means, disagree. I dare you. Go for it. Go for it. Let's see what happens. Now, again, substantively, there are little areas where I'm like, I don't know about that one, Bernie. I think there are literally, you know, middle ground approaches on some of them. For example, on guns, um, saying there's no middle ground approach would mean what? Well, the furthest left position is, keep it real, just getting rid of guns. <laughs> and in the U.S., that's not going to happen. Nor I don't even believe in that. I don't even agree with that. I think that um, we can have more regulation. We can have universal background checks. We can have testing in order to purchase guns. We can regulate the kind of guns that are allowed on the market for sure. But I don't agree with getting rid of all of them. I don't think Bernie does either, but the framing of no middle ground on that issue brings to mind that. Brings to mind like, oh, Bernie wants to ban guns. Again, and he doesn't believe in that, but it's the, the phrasing leads, I think, will lead people to think that's what he means. On abortion, like Roe versus Wade is quite literally a middle ground. And we all support Roe versus Wade, but there is room for some slight regulation when it goes later on in the pregnancy. And I'm okay with that. I like that. Um, so when you say no middle ground, it gives people the perception of like, well, he, what does he want? You know, three minutes before a birth to give a late-term abortion for no reason whatsoever? The life of the mother is not in danger? Like, when you say no middle ground, this is what people can think. But apart from, like, minor disagreements like those are, that general philosophical approach of saying, here's what I believe in, I'm planting a flag, I'm going to defend this, there is no middle ground, that is a winning approach. That's a winning approach. It's been a long time since we've seen Democrats run for office where they actually have core fundamental beliefs and principles, and we'll defend those, and we'll make the arguments. And it's refreshing to see now. That started trending on Twitter, hashtag no middle ground. That started trending. I like what I'm seeing from the Bernie camp. I do. I do. There's, you know, between the move on thing where they picked endless wars, stopping endless wars as the, the one big idea he wanted to push, that's great. That's wonderful. That's popular. 
Um, the idea of hashtag no middle ground, especially in the Trump era, where they keep shifting the Overton window further and further to the right and then demanding the Democrats meet them halfway. And the Democrats do. I mean, look at what happened with NSA spying. As they scream about how Trump's like a Russian asset and, and a Manchurian candidate, Democrats literally voted to give Trump more spying powers. What the fuck? Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on Syria said they agree with Trump when Trump was bombing Syria. What the fuck? So what do people want in this era? They don't want to, oh, yes, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya, and I like my stapler, and I'm going to be on your side, and let's do more of what Republicans want to do so we can say that we compromise. That sounds wonderful. What they want is, hey, you know what? Go fuck yourself. How about that? How about that? Here's what I believe in. How, you want to compromise? Great. Meet me on these issues. And that's what Bernie did on Yemen, for example. It was him and Ro Khanna and a few others. They got together with Mike Lee on the other side, I think Rand Paul. And what did they work on? They worked on, let's stop aiding a genocide. Let's stop arming Saudi Arabia. And that's the kind of compromise that people like, is the kind of compromise that actually has positive ends. So it wasn't Democrats compromising to go against what their values are supposed to be. It was Democrats compromising on their terms and saying, this is a left issue. A left issue is ending wars. So if people on the right want to end wars, wonderful. Then we can work together. But if you want me to work with the Republicans to do more outsourcing deals, no. You want me to work with Republicans to deregulate Wall Street more, no. You want me to work with Republicans to do more war, no. No middle ground on that, bitch. But if you want me to work with the Republicans to, I don't know, decriminalize marijuana, great, wonderful, because it's on our terms. So this is what comes to mind when he says no middle ground. The idea is I'm in control here. I'm steering the ship. I'm going to set the agenda. That's going to be my job as president. I'm going to do that. And you don't have to worry about me doing the fundamental opposite of what you voted me in to do because of some vague notion of bipartisanship and compromise. Depends what the fuck is in the compromise. Isn't that the most obvious thing ever? Like, what do you mean? Of course it depends what's in the compromise. Compromise and bipartisanship in and of itself is not good. It's not inherently good. It's not inherently bad. It depends what the fuck is in the compromise. So this is Bernie saying, yeah, no middle ground. I'm... I have an agenda. I have an ideology. I have a philosophy. By the way, the overwhelming majority of the American people are behind me, and I'm not going to bend on that. I'm not going to compromise on that. I'm not here for a middle ground. I'm here to impose my will, which is the will of the American people. Go get him, Bernie. Go get him. Okay. All right, let me do um, one more here before I take a break. It's one more with Jank and Bernie. Here we go. So Jank Uger asked Bernie Sanders about party unity, and his answer was somewhat questionable. 
But the New York Times had a very interesting story about how some Democratic donors are going to dinners to work to make sure that you lose. Now, those are Democratic donors, not Republican donors. And now even more controversy, and this is not me, it's the New York Times. They said Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Pete Buttigieg, and Terry McAuliffe were at some of those dinners. Does that put a lie to party unity? Well, you know, let the individuals you name speak for themselves. But, you know, two things. I think we are going to win the Democratic primary. And I think at the end of the day, uh, we will have the support of Democrats across the board. Uh, they may not be the Democratic establishment and the big money donors uh, may not be excited about a Bernie Sanders presidency, uh, but I hope and believe uh, they will be far more supportive of me than they would be of seeing Donald Trump get reelected. Are you a little worried that some of the Democratic donors will betray the Democratic Party if you're the candidate or any progressive as a candidate? and support a third party and allow uh, or at least risk Trump winning? Jake, at this unbelievably dangerous moment in American history, I have a hard time believing that anybody with any sense at all would do anything uh, to see that Trump remains in the White House. Because if he does, uh, democracy itself is being threatened. Uh, certainly, there will be no serious effort to deal with the global crisis climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know the answer, but I hope very much that enormous pressure would be put on anybody who claims to be a Democrat uh, who would think for one minute, one moment of doing anything that would aid Donald Trump. That is a little bit naive. It is. So here's where he's right. The overwhelming majority of the people of Democratic voters will go, yeah, Bernie. Even the ones who are not so hot on him right now, even the overwhelming majority of the Hillary voters from 2016, they would go, I mean, of course, what's the question? Yes, Bernie over Donald Trump all day long, of course. But here's what he's missing. There's a giant difference from the voters, the people, and the establishment, the elites. And that's where I think it gets cloudy in his mind. He thinks like, well, obviously, what do you mean? Nobody's going to go out of their way, help Donald Trump get elected because they don't like me? You crazy? They're not going to do that. The people aren't going to do that. 90% of Democrats are going to go, yep, okay, even if I didn't want Bernie, he won the primary, that's it, we're voting for him, no questions, that's it. But you think the donors... Democratic donors, even hardcore Democratic donors. You think they're going to fall in line behind Bernie Sanders? No, they're not going to do it. I guarantee you they're not going to do it. And I think what Jenk is getting at is there were a few stories, um, you know, a month or so ago about how the breakfast cereal Hickenlooper, who has an approval rating of, I think it might literally be 0% or 0% support in the Democratic primary, at best 1%. He was saying, like, no, no, I will run. I'll run. I'll run third party because Bernie Sanders, uh, his argument is, oh, Bernie Sanders, if if he's the nominee, that'll help Donald Trump get elected. No, it won't. That's the best chance of beating Donald Trump. But when you have a centrist jump in as a third party, well, yeah, then that makes it possible that Donald Trump can win. Because even if the, the centrist chips away 3%, that could be a crucial 3%. So I think that's what Jenk is getting at, 
And Bernie seems to be a little bit naive about this, where he thinks, like, well, what do you mean? No, if it's, if it's me or Trump, people are going to go for me. Because in his mind, this is what he did for Hillary. He doesn't agree with Hillary. He doesn't like Hillary. But when it was Hillary versus Trump, he, I think he actually supported the lesser of two evils, Hillary Clinton. So in his mind, he thinks, well, even, even the Democratic establishment is going to go. Well, Bernie, to them, is the lesser of two evils. They might not like me, but they know that I'm better than Trump. So what do you mean? But as Michael Brooks says, and I love the phrasing on this, capital breaks fascist. <laughs> it's true. Virtually the entire Democratic donor class would say, not Bernie. Maybe some of them would break for Trump, but I think probably most of them would try to prod a guy like Hickenlooper to get in the race as a third party. Or they would back Howard Schultz, by the way, who we haven't heard anything from in a while because he's so such an abysmal failure and he's so terrible at this. But I think Democratic donors would try to, for, you know, Tell somebody, hey, do a third-party run, do a third-party one, and we'll back you. And then what will happen is the media will then do their job as, you know, sycophants to power and influence and money, and they'll act like, oh, but, yeah, no, of course, hey, man, listen. They'll concern troll, but really what this is is them propping up the people they want to prop up. So what they'll say is, I don't, think, I don't know, I don't think Bernie can win against Trump. But, hey, there, at least there's a third option, and that third option of fucking Hickenlooper or Schultz or that, I mean, hey, they might have a chance in this election, don't you think? And the media will pro- push out this narrative endlessly. Bernie can't win. Bernie can't win. Bernie can't win. Look at Hickenlooper or Schultz or whoever it may be that's running third party. Look at them. Look at them. Look at them. They're viable. And then that is how you have the nightmare scenario of basically the establishment doing everything it can to – destroy Bernie Sanders, and help anybody else, whether it inadvertently helps Trump or whether it helps the third-party candidate. That's what they're going to do. That's what I think will happen. So, Bernie, you're right that the people, the voters, will largely break for you. 90% will break for you. Because I've seen it myself on Twitter, people who are hardcore Hillary stands, but they'll say, like, okay, but if Bernie wins, yeah, I'll vote for Bernie in the general. Of course. But, again, there's a difference between the people, the voters, and the Democratic establishment. The Democratic elites, the donors, most of them, I think, will under no circumstances support you because you threaten their money. (laughs) You do. You threaten their money. The Democratic strategist class, even the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's, I think they'll be ambivalent. I think they'll kind of try to stay out of the race and not say anything in a similar way to how – remember what Paul Ryan did with Trump where he was just like fucking hiding for the entire general election and every time they'd ask him a question, he'd be like, well, who? Who's Trump? I don't even know who that is, y'all. What does that even mean? What is that? I don't even know. What? What are you saying? New phone. Who this? I think that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer will do a similar thing. So establishment, corporatist, Democratic politicians, I think many of them will not go for Bernie. And I think the Democratic donors, the majority of them won't go for Bernie. So he's a little naive in that sense, man. He really is. Now, but the reaction to that, I think, is crucially important. I think it's crucially important. Because I think there's a way, obviously, that Bernie, using the bully pulpit as the nominee, can destroy all that. He can, like, step on that argument and just fucking, like, what do you mean? Your guys are being ridiculous. And I hope he find, finds it in him to give the proper response. And the proper response is really, a, like, a fuck you right back. <laughs> And it's not like walking on eggshells or kowtowing to their shitty fucking snowflake feelings. Their response is, I'm what you got. I'm the best way of winning. And I guarantee you my argument is more potent. And 
we're going to get Medicare for all. We're going to get free college. We're going to get a living wage. We're going to end the wars. And if you don't like it, I don't give a fuck. I'm where it's at. So if he responds in a way where he kind of slaps them aside and mocks them, then he wins, of course. Because remember, what happened with Trump? Trump did the same shit when the Republican establishment was, I don't know, oh my God, he like does mean tweets and stuff. He's like, all right, bitch, here's another mean tweet. How do you like them apples? <laughs> and then what did they do? They ran Evan McMuffin. And he was like, oh, yes, I'm a very serious person. I'm polling at 1%. Yeah. And Trump was just mocking him, laughing at him and all that. So Bernie's got to respond in a similar way when the Democratic establishment comes for him. Because ultimately, they are a paper tiger. Because like I said, the people are going to be with Bernie. So, but treat them like the paper tiger they are, Bernie. He's a nice guy on a personal level. And he wants to be cordial. And that's part of the problem is you got to throw around your weight sometimes and you got to call them out because guess what? They've been undermining you at every turn. So don't just sit there and fucking take it. Fire back. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, totally viable targets. Go for it. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get into the non-Bernie stories, including... A story that should be the biggest story in the country right now. You're not going to want to miss it. It's about a Republican congressman and war crimes. And then we'll get into Joe Biden. Stay right there. We will be right back, y'all.
This next story, good goodness gracious. Uh-oh. I um I don't think I can even do this story justice with how I talk about it. I don't know if that's if it's even possible to do that because of how extreme it is and just what this says about this guy and about the system, really. 
Okay, um, here we go. So I'm not kidding when I say that this story should be the biggest story in the country right now. This is really something else. This is next level, and it shows you how fucked up the system is that we've gotten to a point where this dude can say what he just said. So this is from PBS. They say the following. Representative Duncan Hunter said he probably killed, quote, hundreds of civilians while serving as an artillery officer in Fallujah. His comments were made public Monday on the latest episode of the podcast Zero Blog 30. Quote, I was an artillery officer, and we fired hundreds of rounds into Fallujah, killed probably hundreds of civilians, he said. Probably killed women and children if there were any left in the city when we invaded. So do I get judged too? Hunter recalled this story in response to a question about the actions of Navy SEAL Edward R. Gallagher, who is on trial in San Diego, accused of war crimes, including shooting at civilians. Gallagher has pleaded not guilty. During the podcast, Hunter was asked specifically about one of the individuals Gallagher is accused of killing, a teenage ISIS fighter. According to prosecutors, the SEAL stabbed the teen who was brought in for medical treatment. Quote, I frankly don't care if he was killed, Hunter said. I just don't care. The congressman added that he has seen photos and videos from the Gallagher case and has talked to other SEALs who served with him who say they don't believe the charges. Hunter also said Gallagher should be given a break and that the ISIS fighter he is accused of killing was going to die anyway. All right, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, let's get a few things straight here. I actually hate it when the articles on this guy Gallagher frame that as the main issue here. Because that was one of many instances of war crimes that Gallagher committed. And they're going to, like, one that's still illegal, but less controversial than the others. So the, the real story is there's a guy who they thought was an ISIS fighter. By the way, they present no evidence. There's no bar that's met or anything. But they say, yeah, he's an ISIS fighter. He was wounded. They bring him in for treatment. While he's on the table about to receive the medical treatment, surrounded by other U.S. Army officers, he walks up and just stabs the guy and kills him. Okay. But if you say, because I know a lot of people will say this, well, he's an ISIS fighter. Who gives a fuck? Well, first of all, again, I just said it's not, it's not proven in any way. But even, let's assume it is proven. Okay. There are also stories on the record of him sniping innocent women walking in the street, one wearing a floral um, hijab. He just sniped them. Killed him. There are countless stories of this guy targeting civilians on purpose. Let me repeat that. Targeting civilians on purpose. We have terms for that. Murder is one. But this is actually beyond that because it's also for political reasons. So it's, what's the word again? Killing innocent civilians for a political reason. I believe the term for that is terrorist. Textbook definition. I don't care if you're triggered by that. It's the truth. So that's the reality. I hate it when they say, this guy Gallagher, oh, he killed an ISIS fighter who was on the table. When you frame it like that, like, oh, he killed an ISIS fighter, a lot of people are going to respond like, well, fuck him. It's ISIS. ISIS is terrible. They had it coming. I don't know why they're going to, like, 
the least of the controversial instances to make their case about Gallagher. No, we, we covered the story on the show. It got a lot of views, by the way, like probably damn near 200,000 views by now, by the time I'm doing this segment. But I detailed all of the instances of the crimes that this guy committed, and they're way beyond killing an ISIS fighter, way beyond that. So it's insanity that that's what they're focusing on in the story. But having said that, look at what Duncan Hunter just said. I'll repeat it. He said, I was an artillery officer, and we fired hundreds of rounds into Fallujah, killed probably hundreds of civilians. Probably killed women and children if there were any left in the city when we evaded. So, do I get judged too? Yes! 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 What the fuck? Yes! Of course yes! Not even a question. Yes! What kind of fucking point is that? What are you saying? Are you kidding me? Listen, man. If this, if you don't know how to respond to this, do the little thought exercise for me. Remove U.S. Army officer and put in whatever boogeyman you want. You have a former Iranian soldier saying casually on a podcast, well, yeah, we killed American civilians. We probably killed women and children. Am I supposed to get judged because of that? Yes. Where's the question? Whatever boogeyman you want, China, Russia, I know it's, you know, it's in these days to shit on Russia nonstop. A, a Russian soldier saying, well, yes, we killed Americans, American civilians, including women and children. Am I supposed to get judged for that? The, the accent kind of trailed off and became something else at the end there. But the answer is yes. If China did that to the U.S., if Iran did that to the U.S., if Russia, if anybody did that, and it was in the context of talking about us or one of our allies. Imagine a Palestinian on a podcast saying, well, of course I killed women and children, Israelis. What, am I supposed to get judged for that? Their response would be, what the fuck are you saying? Of course, how up your own ass are you? How brainwashed and deluded into the cult of American exceptionalism are you? Where you uttered that sentence, it didn't stop yourself immediately to think about how insane you sound. Of course you should be judged. That's what justice is. By the way, this is the party that screams about, We believe in law and order. Donald Trump said that repeatedly in his, uh, in his speech at you know, the GOP conference, the convention. We believe in law and order. Tremendous belief, I have to tell you. Well, here you have a guy who's like, yeah, I killed civilians. So? What do you mean, so? That violates U.S. law. That violates international law. That violates the Geneva Convention. That violates the Nuremberg Tribunal. Okay, what I'm trying to impress upon all of you is, if you kind of like, Move away from the brainwashing that we all got when we were growing up. This is like, this is like damn near close to Nazi shit. Now, I don't say that lightly. And if, you, if you're familiar with this show, you know I very rarely, if ever, make comparisons to literal Nazis. Why? Because I think it has to be a fucking 
pretty clear-cut case before you make a comparison like that because those guys are the worst of the worst. Well, here, I'm more than comfortable saying it. He's literally saying, yeah, I killed hundreds of civilians, including women and children. What, am I supposed to get judged by that? Yes. And by the way, let's be clear. There is a giant heaping dose of flat-out racism in this, too. How? Because in his mind, he's like, well, what do you mean? They're just fucking dirty Arabs. They're just dirty brown Iraqis. Who gives a fuck about them? Who cares? It's not like they count equally to like a good American white family. That is implicit in his comments. If you don't think that's implicit in his comments, you're just, I don't even know how to respond to you because you're silly. You're a ridiculous human being. But there is a a heaping dose of that He's swimming in bigotry with this comment because he really doesn't like what he thinks they're less than. How else can you bring yourself to say, yeah, I probably killed hundreds of civilians, including women and children. Am I supposed to get judged? Yes. Yes. You're not just supposed to get judged in the court of public opinion. You're supposed to get judged literally in a courtroom and go to prison. He's saying, yeah, I killed I killed civilians. What? who cares? Well, I care and people should care because this is like. This is how we want to think of ourselves, guys. And and to be clear, now you see, you know, why the left is so critical and why libertarians are so critical of this idea of, like, us as a moral arbiter or us as world police. Are you fucking kidding me? With guys like this? And how how pervasive is this mindset? How many people in the military are like, yeah, that's... I thought you said we were going there to, you know, bring democracy to Iraq and to protect people. Turns out, you killed civilians and you're damn near bragging about it. Yeah, I know I was supposed to protect them and stuff when I'm there, but okay, I ended up killing hundreds of them. What, am I supposed to get judged? Yes! Yes! Fuck yes! And if anybody disagrees with that, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're just wrong. So this is, it's embarrassing, man. This is disgusting. It's embarrassing. It's immoral. It's unethical. The guy's got no conscience. He's got no core. Remember, this is a guy who's literally up on corruption charges right now. How the fuck, in a place where there is legalized corruption, we have legalized bribery in America, it's called through campaign contributions, Duncan Hunter was still too stupid to mask his corruption. It's legal, and he still somehow broke the law. Well, that shows you he's also a fucking idiot, which is the goddamn cherry on top. And now you see, he was too dumb to hide his corruption charges, In a place where corruption is legal, he still somehow broke the law for corruption. And now he's like, well, yeah, I killed killed civilians. So what? Am I supposed to get judged? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, you fucking idiot. You couldn't hide that and you can't hide your goddamn war crimes. This guy should be arrested, man. I'm serious. Massacred civilians, killed civilians. And he feels, who cares? I'm above it all. It doesn't even bother me kind of sociopathic, psychopathic, insane person are we dealing with here? This should be the biggest story in the country. And the fact that it's not says quite a bit about the media now, doesn't it? It's almost like they have, they do have an ideology. And they might not even know that they have an ideology. And of course their ideology is a giant establishment bias. And there's nothing that's more unanimous across the board in Washington, D.C. than American exceptionalism, which, by the way, is, is a better term for that is 
American supremacism. What's another word for exceptional? Supreme. American supremacist. Doesn't sound as pretty when you say it that way, now does it? And we also lie. We, oh, we believe in equality, but also we believe in American exceptionalism. That makes no sense. Which one is it? You have to pick one. Equality means we're all equal. American exceptionalism means we're supreme, which means we're better than everybody. Which is it? Well, the media believes in American supremacism. It's an implicit bias of the people that they hire and the people that rise through the ranks. And that's why this story is getting no play. Because they all think, well, what do you mean? It's different when we do it. I mean, hello, we are us. Yes, we're us. The gloriousness of us. Yes, the glorious. We're us. So they actually think, that's how stupid they are. They don't even know how to do basic uh, intellectual exercises of like, well, what if somebody did this to us? What if they don't care about it? No, we're above it. It doesn't count. When we do it, it doesn't count. We can kill civilians all we want, and it's fine. It reminds me of the old Bill Maher joke. George W. Bush is going to bring freedom and democracy to the people of Iraq if he has to kill every last one of them. That's what this is. Like, it doesn't matter. What fuck we killed? Yeah, sure, he killed civilians. Who cares? Get over it. He meant well. That's, that's literally what they believe. Like, oh, he meant well, so who cares? How, does it, how is that ever meaning well? I killed women and children, whatever, hundreds of them. Am I supposed to get judged? How is that meaning well at all? It's not. He meant well. See, I don't know. He gets a pass. They're so blinded by their own bias that they can't see straight. And that's why this story is getting no play, and you have to come here to hear about it. Now it is time to um, destroy Joe Biden. So this should be fun. So Joe Biden is beginning to tank in the polls. He's lost at least 10 points from his peak, and it's only been about a month. So um, first of all, yeah, I kind of told you so. Uh, I said I think he's going he's gonna to tail off, and um, he's really not the person that we have to fear. Um, I, and my definition, by the way, was I think that by the time the first uh, contest happens, which is, of course, the Iowa caucus, he's going to be like third in the polling or worse. That's my guess. Um, and we're already starting to see him come down. Uh, again, about 10 points from his peak, and that's a little bit of a conservative estimate, too, because polls vary. Um, but he's definitely, not just in the national polls is he going down, also in the very important contest of Iowa and New Hampshire polls coming out of there, he's going down. So then the question is obvious, why is he going down? Well, very simply, I think it's because people have now gotten a sense that Joe Biden isn't just oh my God, this is nostalgia from the Obama era because he was Obama's VP. Uh, wasn't it better then than it is now under Trump? 
No. They're realizing that's not him. He's his own man, and his own man looks a lot like this. I like the idea they keep in jail longer. I'm the guy that wrote the bill requiring federal judges to keep people in jail 100% of the time for which they're sentenced. Whatever happened to that old conservative discipline about paying for what you spent? When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. I meant veterans. I meant every single solitary thing in the government. And I not only tried it once, I tried it twice, I tried it a third time, and I tried it a fourth time. Paul Ryan was correct. When he did the tax code, what's the first thing he decided we had to go after? Social Security and Medicare. You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. I actually like Dick Cheney, for real. I, I get on with him. I think he's a decent man. I'll vote for this because we should be support compelling Iraq to make good on its obligations to the United Nations. President Bush did not lash out precipitously at Iraq after 9-11. At each pivotal moment, he's chosen a course of moderation and deliberation, and I believe he will continue to do so. I spent last summer going through the black sections of my town holding rallies in parks, trying to get black men to understand it's not unmanly to wear a condom. In the community, in the communities engaged in denial, they're engaged in denial. No one wants to talk about it in the community, and we do not have enough leaders in the community and outside the community. That cadre of young people born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing, because they literally have not been socialized. Madam President, we have predators on our streets. We have no choice but to take them out of society. The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no. I have no empathy for it. We'll continue to stand against the biased resolutions and attempts to delegitimize this about the United Nations. Trans-Pacific Partnership is perhaps the most ambitious trade negotiation underway in the world. Whoa. My guess is many of you watch that. And here's what's going through your head. Holy shit, he's even worse than I thought he was. Can't say you're wrong, dog. I can't say you're wrong. <laughs> um, credit, by the way, to Walter, or excuse me, not Walter, Walker Bragman. W-A-L-K-E-R-B-R-A-G-M-A-N. Um, he's on Twitter, and he's who I got this video from. I'm not sure if he got it from somebody else or if he just spliced it together all himself, but either way, credit to him for putting this together. Um, it's a really important video. And in a world that made sense, that's it. That's it, dude. What, we're, what do you mean? It's over. It's done. It's, that's it. It's over. Where's the, where's the conversation? Where's the question? Where's the debate? This guy wants to become the Democratic presidential nominee in 2020, you want to roll the dice with a character like this, a Hillary Clinton-like character like this, when we already know, that's the one kind of Democrat who can lose to Donald Trump, is this kind of Democrat. A Democrat with a long history of getting stuff dead wrong. 
and being centrist at best, I'm being kind by calling that centrist, and being a neoliberal corporatist. So, see, here's the thing. What people need to understand, anybody who's still remaining on Team Biden, what you need to understand is the criticisms of him, the criticisms of him are substantive. It's policy-based. Because I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I actually think Biden is a good debater. And he proved that time and time again, not just against Palin. I think he even performed better against Paul Ryan, where he just destroyed him like the little child that he is. Um, so it's not like there aren't aspects to him that are half decent. There are. But you're still rolling the dice, because that intangible stuff, that uh, ancillary stuff, it's exactly that. This isn't the main event. The main event is, What's your actual record? What are you going to do in office? And how exploitable are you in a fucking general election debate or in, in the general election in, in general? And the answer is very. <laughs> and uh, the, you are rolling the dice if you go with Hansy Uncle Joseph and his giant hands. <laughs> I love those pictures. Credit to everybody who made them. Can't get enough of them. Um, but anyway, there you have it. Joe Biden summed up. Joe Biden, in his own words, talking about his own record, looks to me like he uh, cares more about political expedience and um, going along with the fad of the times, like being tough on crime, than he does about actual principle and fighting for the right things. Okay, let's talk about the Republican tax cut, bitch. So there's a new report on the impact of the GOP tax cut, and it looks like we were right all along. Despite lofty promises from President Donald Trump and the Republican Party, the $1.5 trillion in tax cuts that went into effect last year have done little, if anything, to raise workers' wages, boost economic growth, or spur business investment. That's according to a new analysis by the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service, which appeared to vindicate warnings from progressive critics that the GOP tax cuts were little more than a scam designed to put more money in the pockets of wealthy Americans. In its 23-page report, the independent research arm found that while the Republican tax law has, done, has not done much for workers or the overall economy, it has sparked a wave of stock buybacks, which primarily benefit rich executives. Quote, there is no indication of a surge in wages in 2018, either compared to history or relative to GDP growth. The congressional research arm found a, con uh, a conclusion that is consistent with recent survey data showing Trump, excuse me, showing, where did I get Trump from? Showing Americans have not seen a paycheck boost from the Trump tax cuts. Okay, that's where I got Trump from. The CRS report also suggested that worker bonus announcements by major corporations immediately following the passage of the GOP tax bill in 2017 may have been little more than, quote, a public relations move. As for overall growth, the CRS analysis cast serious doubt on Trump's repeated claim that his tax cuts were rocket fuel for the U.S. economy. On the whole, the CRS said, the growth effects tend to show a relatively small, if any, first-year effect on the economy. Okay, so, begs the question, well, what was the point? Why did they do this? Well, how's this for an interesting fact? From 2017 to 2018, the estimated average corporate tax rate fell from 
23.4%, it's already abysmally low, but 23.4% to 12.1%. You basically had the corporate tax rate, again, which was already low, cut in half by this bill. Not to mention the myriad other taxes for the rich that were slashed, in some cases eliminated. They took a hatchet to the estate tax, for example, which is probably the single best tax in the country because in a society you have to tax some things in order to fund the government and have the commons in place. And who better to tax than rich, dead people? It's a tax that even Republicans should support. Why? Because they claim they're against, like, unnecessary welfare, and there's no worse form of welfare than handing over millions and millions, if not billions of dollars, to spoiled rich kids who've done nothing in their lives at all. Somehow, welfare breeds dependence, unless it's for spoiled rich kids, in which case it's earned and they deserve it, and the Republicans will defend it to the hilt. So that makes no sense, obviously. But, but this is what the tax law was really about. The tax law was cutting the corporate tax rate in half at a time when corporations were already paying a historically low percentage of the tax burden, um, and also just letting the rich run out the back door with all the money by slashing their taxes massively. So all of the tax breaks for working class people, temporary. All of them. All of them. All of the tax breaks for the rich in corporations, permanent. Isn't that a damning fact? That is a, that's beyond a damning fact to me. And in fact, over a decade, the Trump tax bill, the Republican tax bill, actually raises taxes on people making $70,000 a year or less. Guys, it was a giant scam is what it was. And now even the handful of arguments that they made, which had a kernel of truth in them, that has been destroyed by a nonpartisan Congressional Research Service report. So they didn't go into this with an agenda. They're not flaming lefties. If anything, I would argue that their analysis leans in a slightly more conservative direction. But they're saying, listen, this was, they promised the moon and the stars about, oh my God, this is going to be great for workers. It hasn't been. The other thing is, they, they argued, and they always argue, well, what do you mean? Now you're spurring investment in the U.S. because you make it a more competitive business environment, and, you're, and since you're cutting the corporate tax rate, you're going to have these companies um, do repatriation, which means all the money that they're stashing overseas to dodge U.S. taxes, they're going to bring that money back, and they're going to fucking, it's going to be amazing. They're going to create jobs. It's going to be wonderful. They're saying, according to this report, that has not happened. You want to know why? Because you give rich people money and you give corporations money, what are they likely to do? They're likely to just use it to pad the bottom line. That's exactly what the fuck they do. That's exactly what they do. The idea that it's like, well, thank you, I will now proceed to um, create an endless number of good-paying jobs, that doesn't happen. History shows that that doesn't happen. So that's why there's supply-side economics, there's demand-side economics, the Republicans believe in supply-side economics. The left is supposed to believe in demand-side economics. And also, what you do is, if you give money to the people who need fucking money, that stimulates the economy. 
Because if you give money to younger, to uh, not younger people, excuse me, if you give money to middle class people, working class people, they immediately use that money to, you know, pay their bills, to go lease a new car because they can't afford one right now. They're driving an old car. Um, Go eventually, you know, put down money to get a mortgage on a house. When you give money to people who need the money, they're going to spend that money, and so it's going to stimulate the economy. When you give money to corporations and you give money to the rich, that money's just going to go fucking be stashed away because they're already good, they're already rich, they already have money, they're already doing well. So they're not going to fucking, there's no, it's not necessary for them to spend it right now. And they also say the main thing that's happening here, and by the way, this largely explains the giant, you know, boom in the stock market, is they're doing stock buybacks. That's it. They're doing stock buybacks. So that is a way for them to shore up their own companies. And it, it gives the appearance of, what do you mean? Everything's great. GDP is growing. Our you know, business is booming. And it's all fucking accounting tricks, dude. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. There's going to be a giant crash. There's going to be a colossal crash that is probably very similar to the Great Recession. I don't know what the catalyst is going to be, but there will be a crash because the fundamentals of this market are not sound at all. And every time historically where they try deregulation and tax cuts for the rich, the same thing happens. Boom, bust cycles. We're on the boom right now, but there will be a bust at some point. And it's going to be ugly. So get ready. Get ready, get ready, get ready. (laughs) It was all so obvious what they were doing when you pack the administration full of Goldman Sachs lackeys and Wall Street lackeys, and they're going to protect their own class interests. They're going to help each other out. They're going to, they don't give a fuck about regular people. And that's crystal clear. And if it wasn't before, hopefully this puts it to rest in your mind. So we have a new poll out on impeachment to share with everybody. A majority of polled voters oppose impeaching and removing President Trump, but a strong majority of Democrats are in favor of doing so, according to the latest Harvard-Harris poll survey. The survey found that a plurality of voters, 43%, favor no action against the president, including 44% of independents. 37% support impeaching and removing the president. 60% of polled Democrats say the president should be impeached and removed. But only 36% of independents are in favor. 20% of voters say Trump should be censured by Congress. The new poll, which was conducted after special counsel Robert Mueller's statements on Wednesday, has several other warning signs for Democrats agitating to begin impeachment proceedings against Trump. 68% of respondents said Democrats in Congress should accept Mueller's findings that there was no criminal conspiracy, and 65% said Democrats should accept Attorney General Bill Barr's conclusions 
that the president did not obstruct justice. They continue and say um, 63% of respondents said the investigation into Trump, investigations into Trump are hurting the country, while 58% said it's time for Congress to turn the page on the Russia investigation. So, you know, I even have slight disagreements at the end there where they say uh, 58% say, um, oh, I'm sorry, 63% say the Trump investigations are hurting the country. Well, no, some of the things you have to investigate. Like, you have to investigate on a monument. That's not a question. Uh, you know, you should investigate and have to investigate on uh, corruption and financial crimes, which the Southern District of New York is doing. I don't know if that's what people had in mind when they were asked this poll question, but that's absolutely necessary, and I think that will ultimately be Trump's downfall. Not the Mueller report, but the Southern District of New York investigation, where they're definitely going to find pretty clear financial crimes. So I don't agree with 63% of Americans when they say the investigations are hurting the country. Um, but I do agree with the 58% who say it's time to turn the page on the Russia investigation. I think you can make a case on principle for obstruction. However, I think that as I've you know went into detail in, in a different impeachment segment, I think ultimately that would help Donald Trump in a way that would make it more likely that he gets reelected. Whereas if you don't go down that path, then it's more likely Democrats get reelected. Now, I know some people say, hey, political calculation shouldn't be involved in this, but impeachment is inherently a political process. It is not uh, a criminal justice proceeding. It's a a political process. So you probably should weigh that rather heavily, especially knowing for sure it's going to die in the Senate. but there you have it. You know, I think that this largely vindicates the position that I was expressing. Um, when you have a majority of Americans who are saying impeaching is not a, a good idea. And honestly, I was even a little bit surprised by the fact that even among Democrats, it's 60% who are in favor of impeachment. But I think that's low. When you poll just Democrats, I actually think that's low. I would have guessed it was closer to like 70%. But there you have it. So that's why it is a little bit of a conundrum for uh, Democratic leadership. is because I think Democratic leadership is aware, hey, this is going to go nowhere, and then it's likely going to help Trump. I think they're aware, aware of that fact. But they have, a, you know, a sense of the fact that it's a majority of the base the Democratic base that wants impeachment. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, a rock and a hard place. I don't know why I stumbled over that. Um, because it's like, okay, do we just try to appease the majority of the base by doing this? Or do we slam on the brakes and say, hey, listen, this ain't going anywhere and it's going to help the president, so I don't care what you're for. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> Which, of course, that won't come across. That won't go over well politically either. So... Yeah, it's actually a rare instance where I'm a little sympathetic to the direction that Democrats in D.C. are going. It's like, what do you do? What do you do in this situation? Um, But there are the poll numbers, and you can make of them what you will. Okay. All right, let's take a a final break here. When we come back, 
I got um, presidential candidate John Delaney and the breakfast cereal John Hickenlooper were booed, and it's kind of hilarious. And then later on, Kenneth Copeland, a televangelist, was caught in a hilarious video trying to defend his private jet. A man of Jesus defending his private jet. Hilarious. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and more.
We are back, bitch. All right, time for the lighter portion of today's show. Lighter, lovelier, better. Oh, little thing that all of us will uh, get a smile from here. Presidential candidate John Delaney was booed for shitting on Medicare for All at the California Democratic Conference. This is hilarious. you're not going to be surprised to learn has taken a tremendous amount of money from health insurance companies. (laughs) They're so transparent, man. They're so see-through. Dude, we see you. We see you. We know what you're doing. We see it. We see it. And you're embarrassing. You're really silly. Your argument sucks. And let's go ahead and walk through all of his comments here. So I like when he says, you know, Medicare for all, it may sound good, because it is good. <laughs> That's why it sounds good. Because it is good. What the fuck you say? You know, it may sound great, and people might like it, and it may work, but that doesn't mean we should do it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. That's exactly what it means. <laughs> it means we should do it. Oh, my God. So, yeah, dude, the reason it sounds good is because it is good. And that gets to the next point. He says, hey, it's, listen, it's not good policy. Every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer health care system. And they kick our ass in every relevant category. Everybody's covered. There's no millions who are uncovered. You know, there's no such thing as a medical bankruptcy. They have better health outcomes. They spend less money. It, in every conceivable way. I'm so, it is insulting to our intelligence. That in the year 2019, they're still trying to argue like, come on, bro, Medicare for all is not good policy. You would have to know absolutely nothing about the rest of the world, and you would have to know absolutely nothing about the evidence that already exists to make that argument. So basically, he's banking on the deep ignorance of people in order to make this argument, because it's just fundamentally untrue. 
There's not a single part of that that's true, John Delaney. You're embarrassing. Um, and then the best part is it's not good politics. It polls at 70%, dog. It polls at 70%. <laughs> By definition, that's good politics. It's overwhelmingly popular. What are you afraid of? I- I'll tell you. The Republicans are going, oh, yeah? Yeah, Venezuela. What about Venezuela? What about Venezuela, huh? What about Venezuela? What about it? What about Venezuela? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Like take over healthcare, bro? Is that what you want? Government take over <laughs> They act like when people on the far right make a peep, idiots like John Delaney run afraid. Whereas here, I'll, I'll give you some responses. When they say it's like Venezuela, you respond, it's like Denmark. Next question. That's it. That's it. That's all you got to say, bro. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. When they say, well, you want a government takeover of healthcare? You say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be actually awesome. Um, when they say, death panels, you say, no, the death panels are right now. They're called for profit health insurance companies like Aetna and Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield. They're the ones who make life or death decisions, and money is a factor. It is a factor in their decision making. You want to talk about death panels? Let's talk about the 30 to 45,000 people that die every year in the U.S. because they don't have access to basic health care. I can't stand these guys. Oh, my God. Like, I thought I was going to be having fun with this segment and just laughing and giggling and yucking it up with you guys. But, no, I'm actually pissed. Like, I'm mad. I'm mad at this guy because, I mean, he's ancient. Dude, you're stuck in a different generation. Give it a rest. Why are you still running? No, I guarantee you, I'm covering this segment right now. There will be comments in the comment section where they go, who? <laughs> I don't even know who this guy is, bro. What? What do you say? And my audience is like hyper-educated on politics. And still many of them are going to be like, who? John who? John who? What? <laughs> and let's, let's just be honest here. Eric Swalwell and John Delaney and Tim Ryan and Seth Moulton are all the same person. I mean, what's the difference? There's no difference. On policy, they're exactly the same. They're all polling at a collective 0%. I mean, what a waste of time, bro. And then he's, he's tweeting through it, dog. He's tweeting through it. He's been on a meltdown on Twitter because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hilariously, like, ended him. <laughs> She was like, okay, a lot of people are saying, who should we, you know, who should we endorse going into 2020? Well, let's look at it from the other direction. Who can we dismiss? And she said, John Delaney, gone, sashay away. (laughs) And why? Because he's fucking against Medicare for all. It's good politics. It's good policy. It's morally correct. It's ethically correct. It's fiscally correct. There's no argument against it. So she destroys him, gets about 19 quadrillion retweets. And then he's like, uh, well, well, I don't, I don't see, what, the, uh, you want to, like, debate on this? We can have an event or something. Oh, my God, John, you're so stupid. You Go ahead. Keep digging that political grave, dog. That's what you're doing. You're digging your own political grave. Here's something you should always, always, always remember. It's a political rule. 
You're always going to lose if you just talk about shit you're against. You have to talk about what you're for. You don't, if you're defining your campaign, and that's what he's doing right now, by the way. He's defining his campaign as, I'm the guy against Medicare for all. Well, congratulations. Exit stage right, dipshit. Like, you cannot do that. You have to... You have to say, here's what I'm for, and here's a quick, easy, simple argument as to why it's better. But you can't make a positive argument for anything because he doesn't know dick. And he's walking right into the trap of like, yeah, that's what I'm going to be known as, the guy who's against Medicare for all. So you're – and you know what he said? He he argued on Twitter like, oh, how can we expect to beat the other side when we can't even, you know – disagree respectfully we can't like maintain civility and decorum and yeah like oh you had to boo dude take the l and walk away son hold the l go sit outside okay hold my pocket you know what's wrong with you what's wrong with you dude are you serious come on man i mean i don't just take the l son just take the l (laughs) i had more to say but it's gone it just went out of my head I got filled with um, utter disgust for him. Oh, politi- uh, civility and decorum. You know what I view as pretty uncivil and disrespectful? You know what breaks decorum to me? 30 to 45,000 Americans dying every year from not having basic health care. That offends me. You know what else offends me? People going bankrupt because of medical bills. You know what else offends me? People committing suicide because they have a, a, a long-term disease that costs a tremendous amount of money to treat, and they don't want to bankrupt their families. So they kill themselves to get rid of the financial burden from their families. That is disrespectful. That breaches decorum and civilita. Take a hike, son. I, come on. What's wrong with you? I, The upside of this election will be the – it's a turning point. It's a turning point. This is the solidification of the left being the dominant strain taking over the Democratic Party. Because if you haven't noticed, guys like Delaney are purged, and rightfully so. There's a party for you. It's called the Republican Party. Go have fun there. All right, John Hickenlooper. So the breakfast cereal John Hickenlooper was uh, hilariously booed while giving a speech at the California Democratic Conference. Take a look.
I love it. I love it. I want to bathe in that. That's wonderful. That's glorious. Who knew that the California Democratic Conference was like the heart and soul of the Democratic Party? The people in that room are not fucking around. <laughs> Listen, we've been told over and over and over, and this is the framing that's come from the right and on the establishment left they've bought into it. The idea is, well, what do you mean? Free college and free health care, Medicare for all, and a living wage and all these ideas. Bro, this is just this is what socialism is. And it's bad and it's terrible. And so now when the breakfast cereal comes out and he argues repeatedly, yeah, you know, the answer is not socialism. We, we don't want to give people health care and college and pay them a living wage. That's a bad idea. Of course people are going to boo you, you dipshit. So let's be crystal clear. What John Hickenlooper means when he says socialism, socialism is not the answer, he literally means Social democracy is not the answer. He is shitting on the Scandinavian system. That's what he's doing. And that's why what he's saying is particularly egregious and incredibly stupid. Remember, he accused Bernie Sanders of being like Joseph Stalin. So this is a guy who makes no distinction between authoritarian communism and Scandinavian social democracy. No, to him, it's all the same because he's a dipshit. He's a dumbass. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a loser. And he just conflates it all. I don't know. Bad. And so, of course, when he goes out there and he says socialism is not the answer, you're going to get booed. Why? Because what you're saying is Medicare for all is not the answer. Free college is not the answer. Living wage is not the answer. That's the point you're making. And so you should get booed. Now, more importantly, and here's the key argument here, guys. He says if we're not careful, we're going to reelect the worst president, Trump. No, John, that's exactly the point. The only way Trump gets reelected is if an idiot like you gets the nomination or if an idiot like you decides to undercut a Bernie Sanders nominee by running third party and chipping away two or three percent, making it more likely Trump wins reelection. And Hickenlooper's already come out and said that. He's already come out and said, well, if the nominee is somebody like Bernie Sanders, maybe I run third party. So in other words, you're, all your concern trolling about, oh, my God, we can't have Trump win reelection – you will actively facilitate that exact same thing happening. Because really, when it comes down to it, you're just an ideologue. And your whole position is not anything actually left of center. But all your arguments are total garbage. When you say, if we're not careful, we're going to reelect Trump. No. All of the evidence, all of the data proves that the way to ensure the way to make it most likely Trump loses in 2020 is to go with the Bernie Sanders philosophy, is to go with what you call socialism, what in reality is just social democracy. Now, again, don't take my word for it. Go look at the numbers. 70% of the American people want Medicare for all. 58% of the American people want to raise taxes on the rich. 58% um, of the American people want free college. Over 60% of the American people want to legalize marijuana. Um, only 17% of the American people still want to be in Afghanistan. I can go through a list, and the left-wing ideas are the popular ideas, and that's also reflected in the reality that who has the biggest lead on Trump in the aggregate? Bernie Sanders. Every poll shows him with a crushing lead on Trump. And it's been consistent from 2016 until today. 
that it's, it's been a crushing lead. Also, understand, the most important issue electorally is what? Trade. Why do I say that? Because with the way the Electoral College works, the Rust Belt is the most important for not just the Democratic Party, but the Republican Party as well. So you have the guaranteed states that go, some for Republicans, some for Democrats. It's the battleground states, the swing states where it, it all comes down to. The most important swing states are in the Rust Belt. And the Rust Belt was absolutely obliterated because of shitty trade deals that benefit, benefited corporations and the owner class over working people. Bernie Sanders has the strongest record on trade. So that's why it's incredibly likely he would destroy Trump. A guy like you, a neoliberal corporatist goon, you're not appealing to fucking Rust Belt voters. You're the opposite. You're an out-of-touch elitist, elitist dingbag. Nobody's going to vote for you from there. So how do you not get this? Like, the idea that they haven't, he hasn't really seriously thought about this and broken down the data and thought, and like really gone into the details, it's kind of embarrassing. You're running for president, you're on this fucking ego trip, and you don't even know the most basic shit. You don't know that there's polling, for example, from the Rust Belt that says they prefer populist Democrats over Republicans. You don't know that. You don't know that Bernie's crushing Trump uh, in the aggregate more than any other candidate. You don't know that. You don't know that nationally he's up over 10 points when Hillary was up only two or three points. So the idea that, like, well, the polls were wrong in the last election, they'll be wrong in this one. The polls weren't even that wrong in the last election. Hillary won the popular vote. She just lost the, the, the Electoral College. For Bernie, he's up in every way you measure it. He's up for the Electoral College. He's up for the popular vote way more than Hillary was up for the popular vote. Like, stop embarrassing yourself, dude. I need you to stop embarrassing yourself. I need you to go away. Because you actually facilitate the one thing you say you care most about. You claim, oh, all I care about is beating Trump. Great. Step aside. Move on. Because it's only with guys like you that we would have the Democrats lose to Trump. And the fact that you don't know that at this point is beyond embarrassing. Okay. All right, next. All right, let's make fun of the goofballs on Fox for being goofballs. So on Fox News show, uh, American News Headquarters, that's the show that I was on, um, something hilarious happened here. So you're going to see a guy by the name of Chip Franklin, which I know sounds like he was created in a lab to be a shitty radio host, exactly what he is. Um, He's supposed to be the guy on the left here, okay? I just need to be clear about that. So what they do on the show is they have radio hosts from the left and the right, and they have Leland, who's the, the host. And they, then they, you know, go back and forth on some news issues of the day. So here they're going to talk about the California Democratic Party um, convention and what happened there. And then towards the end of the segment, look at the weird ending. Well, we should be talking about, which is Kamala Harris. You had up earlier on. And Connie, I was trying to take the mic from her. But, yeah, <laughs> John, this is something. i got to get let John get in the last word, but this is an important question, John. Uh, we know that President Trump, uh, because we've talked to people in his campaign, et cetera, they're going to define which, whoever the Democratic nominee is as socialist. And with sound bites like that, it kind of helps. Well, that's a great commercial for Trump to run about a million times next year, isn't it? 
outside of San Francisco. I, 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 That's I, a cult I, meeting inside well, that John, I know you don't have a return trip. I'm trying to figure out why you're putting John McCain's face up. Yeah, and the off chance the president's watching, real heroes out there, Pete Buttigieg, others that have served this country. Just a okay, thought. All right. This, this, thanks, this, went off, this went off the rails. All right. Uh, Chip, John, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, John, we'll have you back and, and finish that thought. See you guys soon. I should write a book called How Not to Resist Trump. That would be the longest book ever. It'd be like a thousand pages, and it would be filled with virtually everything these losers do. Like, he thinks that's like, bro, me? No big deal. I'm just brave and noble and resisting in, like, a really strong way here, bro. Here's my picture of John McCain. See, I want... I want President Trump, capital R, so it spells rump, T, rump. Got him. I want him to see, bro. They're real people, real men. People who served this country like Pete Buttigieg, like John McCain. These are real men, man. What's this president, bro? He's not a real man. He's not a real man. There are ways to resist Trump that don't involve you becoming an utter moron, okay? This is like the even worse example of this is when they do the, I mean, he makes George W. Bush look good. I said, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Minimum 200,000. Innocent, dead Iraqi civilians beg to differ. Minimum, I'm giving the lowest number possible there. Some estimates go over a million. You know, the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession begs to differ. Stop it. Stop it. When people make arguments like that, they're admitting, I don't give a fuck about actual issues. I just care about personal politics. And go away, go do something else, man. Go watch the fucking Real Housewives and go where, where personality is all that matters. The fuck are we talking about here? God damn it. He's supposed to be on the left, and he's like, oh, John McCain. Oh, John McCain. Oh. The John McCain fawning hero worship has to stop. I got news for everybody. That's not a reflection of the rest of the country. The, co- the rest of the country is not like, no, oh, the hero. Ah, oh, yes, John McCain. They're all good men to be like John McCain. <laughs> the guy was an unrepentant warmonger. Uh, politically, he was disastrous. The one good decision he made, two, one was being anti-torture because he was tortured. And the other one was, at the very last second, saving Obamacare. The only reason he did it is because him and, per- and President Trump have personal disagreements with each other. It was over petty personal politics that he was like, yeah, okay, I'll save, I'll save uh, millions of people health care. But the idea that you glorify this guy, Jesus fucking Christ, man. You're on the left. Be on the left. He's a hero, bro. You know, John McCain. Here's my silent protest. Here's a picture of the great man, John McCain. So wonderful. Like, who are you appealing to? What fucking... 
Like, what are you doing? You're just doing a segment where the whole point is to make the idiot Morning Joe cast cheer for you while the rest of the country is like, what the fuck are you doing? What a weird consequence of the Trump era that now George W. Bush's image has been rehabilitated among silly Democrats, centrist Democrats, and John McCain's image has been, you know, restored in the minds and the eyes of silly centrist Democrats. Political commentary is not for you. Please, guys, move on. Okay. So the U.S. government and the Israeli government are claiming that Iran has attacked multiple Saudi oil tankers, and the argument is Iran is becoming belligerent in the Middle East, and, you know, they're a rogue nation violating international law. By the way, hilarious, the U.S. would accuse anybody of violating international law. When we do that, it's called Tuesday. It's every day. We just do it, and we're like, shut the fuck up. We get to do what we want. Um, So... The claim is, oh my God, Iran, they're so terrible, they're so bad, they're such a rogue state, they're the number one state sponsor of terrorism, which is hilarious they're called that, because of course the number one state sponsor of terror is our buddy Saudi Arabia, who we prop and prop up and back and arm and watch as they commit a genocide and cheer them on and, Hercules, 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 kill your many babies. Sorry if that's harsh, but that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing, and it's disgusting. Don't be mad at me, be mad at the fucking people doing it, okay? So, um... Look at the news coming out now on Iran. Let's see if it backs their narrative that, oh, somebody contained them. They're out of control. They're so out of control. Look, Reuters reports, Iran stays within nuclear deals, key limits, IAEA report shows. So even after we have slapped them in the face repeatedly, spit in their eye, we accuse them of shit they didn't do, we're trying to build the case for war by claiming little old America and little old Israel are just acting defensively, they still haven't budged, and they're still following the Iran deal. By the way, just so everybody knows, there were at least a dozen other instances since 2015 of the IAEA reporting that Iran was in full compliance with the nuclear agreement. So every step of the way, Iran was following the agreement. You know who was violating it? Us. So we violated it, then we blame them, and then we try to build a case for war with them to do regime change. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy here? Now, I'm not saying that domestically they're not terrible. It's the Iranian government. They are terrible domestically. But that's no reflection in the slightest in international affairs. And let's be serious. Iran knows they have a rinky-dink military budget. What are they going to do? They're going to fend off? the greatest power the world has ever seen in human history, they're going to do that? They're not going to pick a fight with us. Are you crazy? That's like a little school kid picking on fucking Mike Tyson or some shit. It's not going to happen. They're not going to do it. So we have to pretend, like, oh, my God, they're so rogue and so crazy, and so we have to go topple them, right? 
And then now you know the reality is shit like this. Now let me ask you, have you heard this anywhere else? Have you heard this story anywhere else? Have you heard it on CNN? Have you heard it on MSNBC? Have you heard it on Fox News? Have you heard it on the nightly news? Seems like a pretty fucking important piece of information when this government is in the midst of trying to make a case to go fucking topple another government. Seems like pretty important, right? Like, oh shit, look at that. They're still following the deal even after we violated it repeatedly. We pulled out of the deal. We slapped them in the face. We accused them of shit they didn't do. They're still following the deal. And what's the media like? Well, my, my Pentagon sources have told me that Iran is still to blame and they are still the problem, so I am going to report that dutifully. Because you're hacks. Because you're not doing what the media is supposed to do, which is being a watchdog of people in power. You're sycophants to power. I don't know. My Pentagon source says it, so it must be true. Fact check them! God damn it. How I'm a YouTuber. I have to explain this. I have to explain this to people who've been in journalism their entire careers, I have to do that. Credit to Reuters for reporting this because most, I haven't seen this almost anywhere else. It's kind of embarrassing that you have to come here to get this news. But again, now you know. Now you know. Now, we're, we're at the point, though, I will warn everybody. We are at the point right now, and I'm telling you in advance, okay? We're at the point now where we have done so much to build up to war with Iran. And we're blaming them for shit they didn't do, and we're cutting off their oil exports and trying to force it to zero, which is a, in form of economic warfare to try to starve the country and make it so that they try to overthrow their own government. So Iran, now at this point, they've been pushed to the brink. They go, okay, we're going to start enriching. Why? Why are they saying that? Because they want to have a deterrent, because they know the U.S. wants to topple them. So if they come out and say, no, see, we have a nuke now, that's them saying, now you can't try to topple us, because if you do, who knows, maybe we can fight back. But they're, they've announced, okay, we're going to have to act. We're going to have to fucking enrich now. We're going to pull out of this deal finally at this late date. What will happen is when they do that, because this is the last report before they promise to enrich, so the next one will show they're doing more enrichment. Hear me now, quote me later. When they do that, I guarantee you, U.S. media will dutifully report, oh, my Iran is enriching uranium and they're trying to get a nuclear weapon. What are they doing? And the whole implication of all the articles will be, oh, my God, Trump needs to act. Oh, my God, Bolton and Pompeo need to act. Oh, my God, what are we waiting for? Go get them. They're enriching. They're enriching. Scary. Bad. Stop them. Stop them now. And you will know, because I'm telling you in advance, you will know the context of all this. The context is Iran stayed in the deal, stayed in the deal, stayed in the deal, even during and after the U.S. was violating it, the U.S. was slapping them in the face, the U.S. was doing economic warfare on them, the U.S. was pushing them to the brink, and then finally they said, fine, we'll enrich, and they will be framed as Iran is being offensive here, Iran is being aggressive here, and the little old U.S. and little old Israel have to defend ourselves and go topple them. Guarantee you that's the way this is going to unfold, 100%. And all, very few articles on this, very few coverage of this, they're still following the report. Guarantee you the first time they enrich even slightly above the level, That'll be news everywhere. And they'll use it to build up to the case for regime change, the same way they do it with Venezuela, the same way they've done it already with Iran, the same way they do it elsewhere, Syria, you know, and they'll smear anybody who comes out against them. Look at uh, Tulsi Gabbard, met with Assad for diplomacy, um, and she's smeared to this day as like a genocide lover and an Assad apologist. Anybody who's anti-war is smeared. Same thing will happen for Iran. We're watching the buildup right now, and it's disgusting and scary to see, and the media is aiding and abetting it.
final story of the day, bitch. You guys are going to, I think I saved the best for last. I think that's what this is. Yeah, that's what this is. So get ready. This next video is simply stunning. It's televangelist Kenneth Copeland, this guy here. And he is being questioned by Inside Edition. This guy's a televangelist. He's a preacher. He proclaims to love Jesus. He's going to defend having a private jet. Watch. Isn't it true that you want to fly commercial so that you can fly in luxury? How much money did you pay for Tyler Perry's Gulfstream jet, for example? Well, for example, that's really none of your business, but... Isn't it the business of your donors? Listen, I paid. <laughs> you kind of caught me off guard here, okay. Thank you, Lord, help me. Just let me, let me pray this thing. Well, let me, let me just ask a really simple question. A lot of people think it's unbecoming for a preacher to live a life of luxury and to fly around in private jets. What's your response to that? Very simple. It takes a lot of money to do what we do. Without the airplane that we have that I bought from Tyler Perry, and I didn't pay anywhere. And Tyler's one of the greatest guys. He made it. He made that airplane so cheap for me, I couldn't help but buy it. <laughs> okay, all right, but I want to get to the demons because people are very concerned about that comment. Get a chance here inside of this. I love your eyes. Again, getting back to the comment. You said that you don't like to fly commercial because you don't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. Do you really believe that human beings are demons? Oh, I do not. And don't you ever say I did. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Can you explain what you meant by that, that, by that term then? Just, just explain, because it's really simple. You said you didn't want to get into a tube with a bunch of demons. What did you mean? You think that people that fly commercial are demons? Well, give me a chance to talk, sweetheart. I'll explain this to you. But it's a biblical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It doesn't have anything to do with people. People. I love people. Jesus loves people. But people get pushed in alcohol. Do you think that's a good place for a preacher to be and prepare to go preach to a lot of people? When somebody in there is dragging some woman down an aisle, it, it made me so mad to see that on television. I wanted to punch a guy out myself. I can't be doing that while I'm getting ready to preach. So you just don't like to be around the sinful people or the, the hurtful people. Is that what you're saying? The people, baby. Not the people. To those critics that say that a preacher should not be living a life of luxury, what is your response to that? They're wrong. The Bible also says that it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, correct? The rest of the scripture. But he said, all things are possible with God. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Just so you know, that was actually 11 minutes long. Um, Occupy Democrats clipped out whatever it was, two or three minutes of it, the most interesting parts of it. Um, I highly suggest you go 11-minute clip because 
that made him look like this short clip made him look like literally the worst bullshitter on the planet. In the 11 minute long clip, he's still a bad bullshitter, but it's not as bad as what you see here in the two to three minutes. Um, but having said that, oh my God, that's so glorious in so many ways. <laughs> Here's what happens when you push back on uh, charlatans and, and con men. He kind of just like melted. Um, some of my favorite parts were, he made the airplane so cheap, I just couldn't help but buy it. Pretty sure that's a sentence that has never been uttered in human history. He made the plane so cheap, I couldn't help but buy it. That just shows he has a different conception of money than most people. I, the plane was so cheap. Nobody's ever even said that about a car, probably. Oh, the car was so cheap, I couldn't help but buy it. <laughs> the plane was so cheap, I couldn't help but buy it. By the way, I actually don't know the number he paid, but obviously it was millions. Um, then when he got mad, the picture you see here, when he got mad, man, is that so telling, because that's where he couldn't control the direction the conversation was going in, and somebody in front of him was obviously skeptical. So he snapped. See, guys like this are used to controlling the room. You know, he can go to his mega fucking... I don't know if he preaches at, like, a mega church or anything. I know he has a show on TV. Um, but he can control the environment, control the people around him, and, you know, he he's used to that. When he's confronted with somebody who doesn't immediately buy into his nonsense, and they're skeptical, and they're open and upfront about the fact that they're skeptical, he doesn't know how to deal with it. And so what does he do? He snaps. No, I didn't. Don't you ever say I did. What do you mean? It's literally on video. She just bring, She's quoting you. I, we covered that story, I remember, it was probably like two years ago now, where he said, like, uh, you know, you have to help me pay for my jet because um, I can't be in a tube with a bunch of demons. And she's like, why do you think people are demons? And he's, the argument he's trying to make is, no, no, it's not the people, it's that there are actual demons on the plane, and the demons possess the good people, they're otherwise good people, but then they get possessed by demons, and I can't, as a preacher, I can't be around that when I'm ready, getting ready to preach. But obviously that's all nonsense because demons aren't fucking real. If they're not real, stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And I like how in the middle of the conversation that he pauses a few times. He's like, well, thank you, Lord Jesus. Let me, let me, let me pray on this. And there was a time there at the end. He actually, in the longer clip, you see, he like holds her hand and says a little prayer for her. Like, Lord Jesus, please bless this inside edition woman's blah, 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 blah. And he keeps saying during the, I love inside edition. My wife loves y'all. Well, I'm not sure you're going to like him too much after this, because clearly <laughs> clearly they exposed your ass. I like how in his mind he thinks he's a convincing bullshitter. That's my favorite part, is that he thinks, like, I'm nailing this shit. Dog, what? <laughs> Look, even in the longer clip, he's a better bullshitter, but not, not good enough. And it's just like, how do, you, how do you think you're convincing? That's what happens when he's surrounded by fluffers his entire life. Everybody's, oh, yeah, sure, great. Oh, yeah, you're representing God. Oh, yeah, sure, get the plane. Oh, yeah, the money's great. Um, and then finally the alcoholics argument, like, man, I don't want to be on a plane where you got people who are abusing people and dragging that woman down the aisle. I wanted to punch her myself. I think he's talking about a high profile case of some sort of abuse from an airline against somebody on a plane. But what a shitty dodge. <laughs> what a shitty, sometimes some bad things happen on planes. Therefore, you know, we should fucking, I should never have to fly commercial. <laughs> By the way, in the longer video, his main argument is like, I do so much preaching in so many places around the world that it's actually, it's just so much more practical for me to have this. But 
listen, the counter-argument is way more convincing. That if you, you, ba- you say you're a Christian, you're basing your life on Jesus Christ. It's not up in the air. Everybody knows Jesus' philosophy was the opposite. He was kind of like a communist before communism existed. He was all about the downtrodden and helping people and um, not about material goods and not about consumerism. I mean, that's obvious. The overwhelming majority of Jesus' message is love and peace and nonviolence and helping uh, people who are down and out. So it's not that, like, it's not even that people are against you simply because you're wealthy, dude. It's that people are against you because you are the world's biggest hypocrite. That as you are preaching that you are Christian and you believe in Jesus' philosophy, you're like, I have a bank account with probably $100 million in it, and fuck off. <laughs> because that's not, what would Jesus do in that situation? I mean, I think he would probably even go beyond, like, giving away $99 million of it and keeping $1 million. He would probably just give away, like, all of it, right? I mean, that's my guess. I don't know. But the whole prosperity gospel thing, I just wish they were honest about it. Just be like, okay, yeah, we're not actually preaching what Jesus believed in, but this is what we believe in. Like, if you just preached it, if the prosperity gospel was not the prosperity gospel anymore, and they just called it the prosperity theory or the prosperity philosophy, then who would argue against them? Because their whole thing would just be self-help, you know? They'd be like the Tony Robbins-type characters or whatever, who are like, I'm all about personal improvement, and here I wrote a book on how to be better in business and how to improve yourself, and then you are what you are. And then it's hard for people to, like, do gotchas on you because you're upfront about it. Like, what do you mean? That's what, this is what I teach. I teach the prosperity philosophy. That's one thing. The fucked up thing is you marry it with what is fundamentally the opposite philosophy, a philosophy of helping poor people, helping downtrodden people, preaching against wealth. As you're doing that, you know, you're, you've got a private jet, dog. So admit it, bro. Admit it. You're a giant hypocrite. You don't really believe in that stuff. It's weird how he's comfortable with living this giant lie, isn't it? Like, that's what I think is really weird about this. He's comfortable with living this giant lie. Okay. We are out of stories, bitch. All right, guys. Love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Kyle, out.